Ezekiel, we, we did a re- overview of 38, 39 last week, uh, but now we can dig into some specifics. And I guess we're not going to, we're going to end up coming back to it when, after I take a, a couple week break from you. Ha ha ha, from you, let's get it. Uh, Luke, Luke was asking this question. This is a map. I don't know where they found this. Somebody tried to find these places um, that are at the beginning of the book. And you've got Magog up here on this map, 1874 map. Gomer's over here. Uh, Togomara is over there. Meshach and Tubal are over here. There's Meshach, right? So this is all, if this is the Mediterranean Sea, here's Canaan or Israel. This is the way north, right? This is like people, it's like the people that live up on, uh, you know, in Canada. They're scary. You don't know anything about them. They wear strange hats. They don't, they talk funny, right? Yeah, the Canadians, big threat, right? The Canadians up north. If we wanted Canada, we could just take it probably. They'd probably say, that's just fine. You can have us. But... We're done with the British crown, but anyway. <laughs> so, but the point is of these place names is that they're up to the far north, right? So, um, and then whether this map is accurate or not isn't really the, the point, so to speak, because what we're most concerned about is that, well, not just that they're literal places, although that may be true. Um, some people take them as prophetic places. I'm not so sure that's helpful. But they do represent... Um, an unknown fearsome enemy, right? Unknown is the key. Like this is not anyone. That, uh, actually, it would be kind of like the Gauls were, right? Like when the Romans went to fight against the, what ended up being the Germanic tribes, right? And these people are savages, right? They don't fight like us. They don't. They don't follow our rules. They don't. Just watch the beginning of Gladiator, mm-hmm. right? Like these are the Romans still overpower them yeah. easily because they have weapons that are. So, more substantial, but they use strategy strategy and brains. Yes. All right. So um, let's review uh, and then we'll talk about some of the details here. So just read, how about just one through six to get us started? Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against God of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Mesach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. All right. So um, it's kind of interesting how this works, I think, in that the, both Ezekiel as the prophet is to set his face, as God does, against Gog. But then Gog actually turns him around and uses him. Right? So this, usually when we think when God's against us, it means that we can't do what we want. But in this case, he takes Gog, and because he's against him, he uses Gog to fight a war. Which Gog is more than happy to do, probably. <laughs> and join with, um, this is the source, one of the sources of uh, 
of the White Stripes song, Seven Nation Army. Anybody know the song? No. Of course you do. If you've ever been to a ball game, you know Seven Nation Army. That's the name of the song. Anyway, it's, it's about this, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But uh, there's how many nations along with Gog? We have Gog, one. Then we have Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's four. Then Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Actually, I think you're supposed to put Gog with Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's one. That's one. Is this how you work it? One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, and Magog, seven. All right. It's a seven nation. That's the whole thing I was trying to make. How you split these up are a little bit questionable um, because here Gog is in the land of Magog, but elsewhere in the Bible, Magog is a personal name. Both in Revelation, we looked at last week, Revelation uh, 20. It's a personal name, so it's Gog and Magog, as of two different people. Uh, also, Magog is mentioned elsewhere. Uh, Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles 1. Should we look at one of those? I guess we can. Genesis 10. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. You hear some of those names. So sons of Japheth. Who was the son of? Who, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the sons of? Noah. Noah, right. right. So we're connecting back to the flood, the flood story. Now, um, as with any kind of place name, sometimes place names actually come from the people that live there. Right? So Magog can be a personal name and a place name. The land of Magog, meaning the land where Magog and the people of Magog dwell, right? So we're sometimes named after our fathers, right? Uh, what would be a good example of this? We're in, I don't know, Sherman. Did Mr. Sherman live here in this town? I don't know. No, I still think it's hilarious that they changed the name when the news got out about what Sherman was doing on his march. I don't remember what they changed it to. And then after a while, they changed it back. They didn't like melt his statue down or anything like they did to Robert E. Lee. Such a, so, so ignorant. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's how, that's how it works. I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Washington. Oh, yeah, Washington, D.C. It's named after the guy who dwelled there. Yeah, right. How about the state of Washington? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Were there Washington, people named Washington that came from the state of Washington? Probably not. Probably not. I've never been to Washington. Can you think of it? I'm trying, I just can't think of one. Think of a, if you think of a place name, it's named after the person that once lived there. I mean, I guess Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, it's Woods, right? Yeah. All right, there we go. Whew. Oh, that was that was like what? Madison. Madison. I wonder. Yeah, maybe. Well, after Sam Houston, do his do his sons and son sons still live there? I don't know. All right, but that's probably what's going on here. Some people think that these names are a cipher or cryptography, that if you drop the vowels and you just use the consonants and then you shift the consonants off by one or, or use some kind of code. But, I mean, this is something they did do in ancient writing to disguise the real people. But, um, so you would connect that to Eldad and Maydad from, where is that, Numbers 11. So maybe it's actually Eldad and Maydad. And then you shift all the consonants over so it's Gog and Magog. I don't know. 
Um, Josephus, who's a first century, first century historian, actually uh, speaks of, of Christ, is um, a Jewish historian, thinks this is the Scythians, or Scythians, however you want to pronounce that, right? So that's where these places are, are suggested, because Lydia, this is Cappadocia right here. This is called Cappadocia. You know the Cappadocians, you hear about them at Pentecost, they come. Lydia is the town. Gog was the king of Lydia. It's well attested to. There's inscriptions, there's histories that... Rec- it goes by, his name gets translated differently depending on which language you're talking about. So Gygus or Gugu or Gugi, it doesn't matter, Gog. We'll call him Gog for the sake of argument. All right, so like I said in the second paragraph, collectively all these people are known like as the enemy of the North. If you watch Game of Thrones or read the book, these are the guys across the wall. Right, that you built the wall to keep them away. Um, and so the reports about these people were that they were wild people, you know, like Wisconsin people. Brutal, <laughs> brutal and bar- with cheese heads, brutal and barbaric. Yeah. Perfect symbols of the archetypal enemy rising against God and his people. Well, maybe not that. Um, the soul mention we looked at last week was in Revelation chapter 20, right? Uh, with God and Magog, it's the only other place they're put together. And there it's, as we talked about last week, the thousand year, quote unquote, thousand year reign of Christ, shh, Christ, um, with Christians, coming to a conclusion with Satan, being bound. So that Gog and Magog are, are fighting against God's people in the intervening time between Christ's first advent, when he came in the flesh, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and his second advent, when he comes again. All right, that's how John uses these guys. All right. Um, and again, Magog, he could be referring back, you know, the reason why he makes it a personal name, John does, in Revelation, is because it was a personal name. You hear, it's a, it's a land name, the land of Magog, but that's where Magog dwelt. Make sense? I don't think it's that, con- yeah, maybe it's not that confusing. All right. But it's worth kind of working that out. People sometimes will say, oh, this is an error in the Bible or something. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So... What did I write there? That last sentence of the second paragraph. In the New Testament too, then, rather than a specific human, national, or political figures, quote-unquote, Gog and Magog primarily represent demonic powers and principalities that wage against God's redeemed. There you hear today's epistle reading, don't you? Yeah. Uh, But that have been defeated by Christ, whose victory over them will be consummated at his second coming. Right? So we've likened it to like a mop-up battle, right? Or mop-up skirmish. The skirmish is after the battle's already been won. It's like what happened, like... For 10 years, they kept finding Japanese who thought the war was still going on. Right? The, the, the war had been, and the, the emperor had, had surrendered. The whole thing was over. And yet, there were lots of people who didn't think it was over. There's probably still people fighting wars that have long since ended, right? And some wars never seem to end. That's another story, too. So, I think we can understand this. Christ has won the battle, he's defeated sin, death, and devil. Um, but there are demons, and, and Satan himself is still prowling around, wounded, condemned, but still prowling about, seeking to tear some people away from Christ before he comes or returns again. All right. Pretty straightforward, I think. Um, and again, what is, it's actually God using these people for his purposes. This should remind you with the hooks in the jaw of, should remind when we talked about Pharaoh being a, like the great crocodile of the Nile. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was kind of a weird thing, wasn't it? Uh, that, that was back in chapter 29. Maybe you should look at that. Just to recall, Pharaoh the crocodile, son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Same kind of language? 
and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak of us, says the Lord, behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster that who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, my river is my own, I have made it for myself. But here it is. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. So there, it's that prophecy against Pharaoh. I mean, this is true um, even for the Exodus. Pharaoh thought that he was, what? Um, an autonomous actor in the grand stage of, of the world, right? The theater of this world. And yet the whole way through, he's doing God's, he's actually doing God's work. Even, even in his hardening of his heart, even as God hardens his heart, that's for the sake of, of actually demonstrating the authority of Moses's word. Moses says, let the people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, okay, here's the plague. Then the plague happens, just like we heard today. First the word, then the sign. The sign confirms the word. Without the, without the word, the sign means nothing. Oh, it's just another gnat infestation, right? But if, if the prophet says, here they come, and this is the reason why, he did that 10 times, to the point where Pharaoh does kind of repent. Okay, go. And then he changes his mind again. <laughs> it was after him again. You can't lose, you know, a few million cheap immigrant, immigrant laborers, right? I mean, you're not going to just shut off your borders and not let them come, come not bring them back. You're not going to just deport them because you, you want all their free la their cheap labor, free or cheap, right? That's, sorry for the mo <laughs> modern application there. Uh, yeah. Uh, why seven nations, roughly, so to speak? We'll see seven a lot more, especially in chapter 39. You have seven months and seven years. Seven is the number of, well, we heard this morning. Of the week, that's right. Yeah, and of completion. On the seventh day, God rested and he called it creation very good. So it was complete, right? And so here, this is like a complete, this is all the nations are coming against Israel, at least all the nations of the north. And uh, we'll see that with seven weeks and seven things. As far as, I mentioned this in the sermon on Wednesday with the two kingdoms doctrine, and this is something that I don't like, I think I even said that, that God works through civil, through civil rule, governmental rule, again, for our benefit, because we look at what the government's doing and we're like, how is that benefiting us? Right? But, I mean, that's what he says he's going to do here with Gog, uh, and make, from the land of Magog and, and the other nations, right? Persia, Egypt, etc. Um, it's what he says, he even sometimes tells the kings that he's going to do this. Cyrus is an example from Isaiah 45. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's that way, right? Cyrus even writes a chapter of Daniel. He has this whole proclamation that becomes inscripturated in Daniel. And then, I think I said it on Wednesday night. That, um... Yeah, and uh, when, uh, when Pontius Pilate is given to write the, the inscription above Jesus' head, you hear that word inscription, and you're like, wait a minute, scripture. And he's like, what I have written, I have written. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right? Can't change it. Can't take away from it or add to it. That's what it says. Yeah, so even he, who's not really a prophet, and not really godly, yet God speaks through him, see? So, and acts through him. So this is not a popular thing, I think, for us, because we're looking like, well, what could God be possibly doing to us? I've recalled this story before, but it's worth reiterating. It was our first chapel back in person um, after the lockdowns. And one of the children asked me, why, well, Pastor, why did, why did we... Um, why did God let this happen to us? It was a really remarkable statement, right? Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have uh, perfected strength. And 
And the answer was to repent us, right? Because we had our hearts, our priorities. Uh, maybe it's you, right? Now, the hard part is, why would God send a ruler against us, right? To take us, to prevent us from hearing God's word and receiving his sacrament. Why would he do that? That doesn't, that seems kind of, he should make it easier for us to go to church, right? He should make it easier. Right, and we learned that lesson, I think. I mean, we've talked about it a lot since then. You know, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, if the Supreme Court hadn't ruled, I think we would have, we were pretty close to doing it on our own anyway and just letting the chips fall where they may, right? I mean, whatever. I mean, the sheriff wasn't going to come after us, so we knew that much. They weren't really going to do anything. We just get the mockery or the shame, be shamed by everybody. You're wanting to kill grandma or something, right? So I talked about that last Sunday. All right, so... Uh, far north, that's the key there. They're all from the far north, all together, and they are with, they're going to do the Lord's bidding, but they're actually, the Lord is actually against them. So he's driving them towards Israel. Maybe they, maybe they are reluctant, but that's where the Lord is sending them. And he's, you know, he's got his hooks in their jaws. It's like, what is, it's like a bridle, right? Is that what that is? With a horse? Bridle? <laughs> hooks. Yeah, not so pleasant. All right. Uh, I guess you could talk about the clothing and whatnot, but I don't have anything about that. Um, here's the other thing to note at the end of that third paragraph is that the warfare is not punishment. The warfare against Israel is not punishment. This is what Bobby was just saying. Sometimes we need, maybe not encouraged, but we need to be challenged, right? Um, and I mean, that's a good way to think about, I think the way Christians should be challenged right now and how they think about Israel. Do they think of it as a national ally, which it is, right? And we support them because they're an ally and we work together. They're, they're kind of the only, quote unquote, democracy in the Middle East. Right, so that's why we're allies. And we helped establish the nation, right? Um, and we supplied them weapons over the years and everything. Um, all right, so we can talk about it that way. But as Christians, that's not a theological motivation. That's just practical, political, right? Um, but we've seen... I've, was again yesterday, because it was some kind of Jewish Federation thing where they got all the Republican candidates to come and speak. Yeah. And uh, this is where uh, Mike Pence announced that he's not going to continue to run. This is where Donald Trump said, we're going to stand with Israel. The really remarkable one was this Vivek Ramaswamy guy who was like, this is a holy war. I was like, ooh, I'm not sure you want to go that far. Since he's a Hindu anyway, it's like, wait a minute, you don't even agree with the Jews. Uh, anyway. Yeah, so it's just a mess. But as Christians, sometimes we won't learn that kind of discernment until we're challenged to think through the issue like we've been doing here. Um, I've had some people that are not part of the congregation, but part of the school that have reached out and wanted to, Pastor, what do you think about it too? So I think a lot of people are like, I'm not sure that what I'm told to think, like it's good versus evil, is really what I'm, how I'm supposed to think about this. Obviously Hamas, what they did was evil, right? But is it also good then to respond and kill 5,000 Palestinians, including Hamas? I'm not sure, right? I mean, warfare, this is the time to talk about the social contract, which is actually, I think, in this. So you know what a social contract is? This comes from John Locke, you know, John Locke, political philosopher, Basically, the influence for the founding fathers, the guys we mentioned, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, etc. Uh, social contract means there are certain things that we agree upon that we have in common, 
And because of that, then we can, we can negotiate kind of a peace. But the problem is, is that the, the moral ethical foundation of Islam and the moral ethical foundation of Judaism are not the same. And so it's hard, they can't negotiate a contract apart from something simple like uh, land or oil or something like that, right? It has to be on practical basis. The moral theological basis, they're as opposed as they can be. Despite everybody, what people say here, teach the kids in, in college, that, oh, well, it's, it's a Judeo-Christian, or we're all faith of Abraham, right? You've heard this? We all have the faith. Faith of Abraham was in Christ, so we don't share the faith. Actually, only one of us has the faith of Abraham, according to Jesus, <laughs> right? Anyway, um, why did I bring that up? Oh, social contract. It's true that, like, if you don't have a basis for negotiation, if you don't agree on common things like property, life, marriage, this is why, this is why we, as Christians, we're becoming increasingly opposed to the civil estate, the government, because they don't agree with us anymore about, like, protecting marriage or property, right? They'll let you go rampage in a city and destroy property because you have grievances, like, wait a minute, I thought we agreed on that basic fundamental tenet that private property is to be protected. Even public property, actually. We don't apparently agree on that. So now you see what happens to the contract? The agreed upons? They're being dissolved, and that's how you end up with war. All right. So these guys don't have any of that. There's no common social contract with the people of the North. They're barbarians, which is actually probably too generous, because barbarians, that just means farmer, by the way, in Latin. So they're, you know, they're, they're just like... Brutal farmers from Wisconsin. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, okay, so again, the punishment is, uh, of, the, uh, of the unconverted against Israel um, is, you'll see this in the book of Acts, right? Where the destruction of Jerusalem is to scatter the disciples throughout the world so that the gospel goes forth. You're like, well, wait a minute. That's not a good thing to go and destroy the city and tear down the temple and everything. Yeah, except they kind of were hanging out in the city and they wouldn't go do what Jesus told them to do which is going to make disciples of all nations by baptizing and preaching, right? And then here they are hanging out in Jerusalem. And Paul, this guy who shouldn't even be an apostle, untimely born, he calls himself, he's out doing all the work for, he's the one visiting Philippi and Cappadocia and all throughout Asia and Lydia and all these places. He's the one going with the guy to Rome and to Spain. Nobody else. Where, the other guy. And they're like, oh, it's okay, Paul, you go do that. Like, wait a minute, don't you remember what Jesus said? So then, as he promised, he destroyed the city. He sent all the Christians out from Jerusalem, and they had to travel throughout the world. And then, then you have legends like Thomas going to India, of all places, right? You know about that? Yeah, so, because you can't stay in Jerusalem. So that's their, the Lord using persecution in order to accomplish a good work, which is the, the gospel going forth. All right. Making sense so far? All right, let's read... The next uh, three verses there, seven through nine. Prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend so now again this is this is spoken to Gog and all the other nations Dorothy Dorothy 
Patrick, give it back to Dorothy, please. I'll give it to, just give it to Dorothy. Thank you, fine. Nice compromise, I like it. We have a social contract here. <laughs> uh, anyway, prepare yourself to be ready. Again, God, may God, the seven nations, you and your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited, right? And then you will come into the land of those brought back. So now you will come into the land of Israel after they've been returned from Babylon. Okay. Um, from many people in the mountains of Israel, which have long been desolate, they were brought out of the nations and now they dwell in safety. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and your many peoples with you. Right? So, I mean, how's that for a, a prophecy? Because he's going to spend chapters 40 through 48 telling them how they're going to be restored and God's going to make them a great nation again. But he's also just warned them that even after they get back, they're going to be assaulted from the north. Which actually turns out to be true if you want to say this is the Greeks. Right, Alexander comes through. Just like two, uh, a very short time after they get returned from the promised land. Alexander comes through the great and, and conquers them. Not the Russian Alexander, the Greek one. What? Mm. All right. So, uh, by the way, uh, there has been this question. And so I gave you a paragraph that goes over the bottom of page one, paragraph two. Again, about the rapture. All right. Um, people who follow the rapture are, are called Kyleists, by the way, Kyleists. And this is the seven-year tribulation. So they like to take this as being not literal or historical, but actually a description, because of John's use of Gog and Magog in Revelation, as a description of the, of the rapture, of the tribulation. Right? So Christ comes, he establishes his church, but then there's a seven-year tribulation where the armies of the north come against us, against his church. Right, and there's this last battle, if you like. So the battle for for the for the rapture people, the battle was not won at the cross. That was only like the beginning of the war, and then. But the last battle is the big one. Right? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, I suppose it does, because, I mean, as far as logical progression, that's how you would work it, right? First, the little battle that starts the war. Then, then the long slog of the war, and finally the culminating epic, dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Jesus finally defeats the devil. But that warfare is Jesus on earth for seven years, too. And, and the saints are raptured before that happens, so they don't have to suffer through it. That's what that's about. Some of this is a little bit of a stretch to prove from the Bible, uh, but so it goes. And... Uh, then there will be, after he defeats them after those seven years, then he reigns on earth for a thousand years and then takes all the saints into heaven, I guess. Um, this is not what we, what we believe. Children, Esther, please stop so that I can continue teaching, okay? It's not appropriate play. Uh, what were we saying? It kind of, um, to me, I can't think of a word, but then it takes away from the cross. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And for us, everything hinges on one word in Greek called telos, which is the usually translated the end or the completion. All right. And that word is used all over the New Testament, referring to the end or the completion or the fulfillment. Right. But the most, the most uh, emphatic use of that word is at the cross itself in the, in the perfect, perfect tense to tell us die. It is finished. Now and done. 
It's done, right? It's, and it's perfect. Here, this is where Greek does, you need to know Greek. You need to learn a little Greek. Because I don't know how you do this in English. How do you make something perfect? As in like it's done and it's forever done. Has been, I think is what we usually do. It has been finished. It's how we make things perfect tense. But is, is, so you could, when you, when you hear that on Good Friday or whenever, it is finished, you should translate this way. It is and it always will be finished. All right. Because it, because of the, the tense of the verb there. All right. And so this, that's the, this is part of the challenge with biblical interpretation is like Darby and the, the guys who did the Schofield Reference Bible, they weren't working with the original language. They were working with English translations. Right. And then, I mean, like for another example, good for Reformation Day, is that you had a thousand years of people misunderstanding repentance because of how Jerome translated it into Latin back in the third century, when he trans- or fourth century, when he translated it as do penance instead of be repented or, be, or repent. He said do penance. And so then they, created a whole, they ended up creating a whole doctrine in the church, or practice, doctrine and practice, of how you make penance for your sins. That is how you make amends. And it came out of a translation. You see. So, so this is the problem. I mean, you want, you want pastors who are well-trained in the original languages. I, there's no other way to really say this. Because otherwise you're dependent on a derivative source rather than just on the text itself. So this is a key. Today you heard Sola Scriptura, right? If you want to think of a Reformation theme, Sola Scriptura, nice red. Well done. You ready for the... Yeah, yeah. My mom said wear red on, on Facebook. On Facebook. Sola Scriptura, remember Sola Gratia and Sola Fide, right? Faith alone, grace alone. Scripture alone. Today you heard Scripture alone. It's the Word of God alone that does these things, not... Not the signs, not the wonders. Those are only proof of, of the word. When God gives it, he doesn't always give that testimony. All right. Uh, why did we bring up scripture alone? Oh, yes. Um, but original languages. That's been our practice from day one as Missouri Synod. It was our practice in Germany before that. Scandinavia came from Luther, right? He translated the Bible into German for, for the lay folk, right? Um, but the pastors were trained to read it in the original Greek and Latin, or Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, actually. They would see what Jerome did with the Latin against the Greek and Hebrew. That was a new thing, though, uh, and we can actually thank the Roman church for that, the humanists in the Roman church, like Rotterdam, who had compiled the Greek New Testament, which hadn't really been done. Those, those manuscripts were sitting in the Vatican, nobody was able to read them. That was a new thing, even before the Reformation. All right. Uh, let's see what else. Tell us, tell us, yes. Christ's first coming, his last coming, his final end. But ultimately, all things are finished at his cross. Right? So, again, this is the way we look at it. Um, just to read what I wrote. The end came with the fulfillment of the Old Testament at Christ's coming. Right? I have come to fulfill the law. Not one jot or tittle until all is accomplished. And then he said at the cross, it is finished. But still to come is the final end. Uh, in the consummation of all things at the second time. During this present time, Satan is now waging the, his last-ditch battles against the redeemed, and the scriptures suggest that his warfare manifests in antichrists, plural, not just one, and the man of lawlessness, Second Thessalonians, will intensify before the final defeat of all evil at Christ's parousia. So when people say, Pastor, it seems like the world, world is getting worse. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, Jesus told us that would happen. Right. 
And it, we can fight against the darkness. I don't have a problem with that. Just recognize that our fight is not with one another, but it's against powers and principalities in the heavenly places, against the spiritual forces of darkness, right? right? And then ultimately Christ will come again. The reason why we fight against the darkness, against sin, death, devil, still, is for the sake of our neighbor. That they too would hear of Christ and repent, believe, and be saved, right? Uh, even if it means that like, we're this little outpost in the midst and surrounded by enemies who are opposed to us. Oh well, right? Even if we have to do it somewhat secretly so that we can maintain a congregation without being oppressed. So be it, right? Um, we, I don't know why we would think the promise is that things would be easy <laughs> when Jesus promises us the opposite, right? All right, and here this Gog and Magog and, and the other nations are an example of, of how that works. All right, so now, now we're going to send Gog um, and all the forces to go do their worst, right? Verse 10, uh, maybe through 13. Give him back to her. Thus says the Lord God on that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise a legal scheme and say, I will go up against the land on the now you know how my life is. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, 14. Oh, or 13, yeah, through 13. Sheba and Bidan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods to seize great spoil? Okay, yeah, your translation is a little different. That's nice. No, it's good. Um, that's a good way to... That's another way I said if you can't read it in Greek or Hebrew in this case, you can compare translations. Right, and that will help get you closer. Um, and there are actual... English study Bibles that have will give you Hebrew reference and Greek references. Give you lots of definition, um, especially in, the, in in Hebrew. One word can mean many different things, so you kind of have to look at context. And so different translators are going to come to a different conclusion here. All right. So on that day, shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind. Where do they come from? How did the thoughts arise in God's mind? Who's the one who's sending God? God is, that's right. So where do the thoughts come from? God, right? Even as evil plan? Yeah. You will say, I will go up against the land. And so notice now the promised land, Cana is, or Israel is being described as unwalled villages. So they're defenseless, right? Or they don't think they need a defense, maybe. Peaceful people, dwelling safely, dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. These are, these are, this is a, uh, this is the Shire, if you read Lord of the Rings, right? Like, which is the one, one thing with, well, there's many things with the movie, but movie series. But this is the one that really upsets me, is that Saruman, who was the White Tower guy, while, while they're going to defeat Sauron, Saruman goes and invades the Shire and turns it, in, turns it into basically England after the war. This, it's called this, in the book, it's called the Scouring of the Shire. He destroys their village. He builds plants and there's smokestacks. And, it, you know, this is Tolkien who liked to live in the country. <laughs> saying, you know, look at what Saruman did to, to the Shire. 
Um, that's kind of what, what God's going to do here, right? Just go. They're, just, they're easy pickings. They don't even have bars or gates, right? You just walk right in. Take plunder, take booty. Stretch out your hand. Stop it. Um, take plunder, take booty. Stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, right? By God's people. Against the people gathered from nations. So this is, which are we talking about which Israel now? If it's gathered from nations. We talked about this last week, I think, right? There's the gathering of Israel back from Babylon, but Ezekiel has also talked about bringing all those who've been dispersed in and even other nations, which will come in the next few chapters. So this could be actually less about Israel coming back from Babylon, but actually the Christian church because of the nation talk, right? I think that's how we want to understand it. Who have acquired merchants of Tarshish, all their young lions, you said like the leaders, I think, will say to you, oh, we won't want to miss this, the end of 12, who dwell in the midst of the land, that's how this translates it. ESV says, at the center of the earth. I think I told you last week you should translate it as the navel of the earth. That's the literal. Uh, literally what it is. So it, what, what are we saying here? That God has made this place where all, all the riches of the world have been gathered and dwell and, and are distributed. Right? So you think of the way that the church is described by John in the Apocalypse, right? Where... Christ is at the center, and out comes rivers of living water, and there's trees bearing fruit, and all the nations come because that's where every, everything good dwells. Right? But now here, he's bringing these pagan nations against them, against his land, which is interesting. And to plunder it, uh, booty, carry away silver and gold, take away livestock and goods, and take great plunder. All right. So again, if you want to just take this as the archetypal enemy, archetypal that means like uh, the one that represents all the enemies of Christ and his church. That would be a good way to take this. And that as Christ has won the victory and he's gathered you into his church and he's here feeding you and strengthening. He, he, we don't need walls. We, we, we're, uh, we have walls, but protect us from the storm. But like, like there's no, we, we don't have to set up big defenses outside the church to keep the barbarian hordes from coming into church. Right? We actually welcome people in. All right? But yet there are attacks that come. And that's what the Ephesians text was about today. Is we don't have to go out looking for a fight. The fight will always come to us. Right? We don't need to be offensive needlessly. Although there are Christians that like to do that, especially on social media. <laughs> to go around trying to offend people with, with doctrine. Um, but, but you can speak the truth and love and you will be attacked for it. All right? um, so be prepared with the defensive... The defensive weapons, right? Even a sword is used for, can be used for defense, not just shields, right? All right. So, uh, yeah, that's what's happening right here. All right, 14 to 17, I guess, is next. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. 
Thus says the Lord God, Are you of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Okay. Now there's a few things that we need to note here. Um, I didn't mention this before. But we saw it up above as well. Uh, where does it say? Come to pass, those thoughts are rising in your hearts. Didn't it say latter days before? Did you miss that? Oh, well, it says it down here. Uh, the, the latter days, there's some question as to what that means. Does that mean, sorry, it's coming. Here it is. Um, does that mean after, the, after their return from Babylon? Or does it mean after Christ's ascension and resurrection? Or resurrection and ascension, I should say. Um, the way we sing it in, in the one hymn, O God, O Lord of heaven and earth, we say in these gray and latter days, right? In the last stanza, we, say, we speak of the gray and latter days. Um, the, we as Christians have understood this time to be the latter days. Ever since Christ ascended into heaven when he promised to return in the way that he left, right? Descending. Lo, he comes in clouds descending, right? So we're looking forward to that, but we live in these latter days. So that's why I would suggest over and over, that's been the understanding of what's going on here is this Gog-Magog attack is not on the nation state of Israel or the returning exiles from Babylon. It is upon Christ's church, who is the new Israel. Is this following? All right. And, and then this remarkable statement um, that they will know me, the nations will know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Now, how is God hallowed, made holy, in Gog, who the Lord has brought up against his own people? How, how is God's name um, kept holy, to quote the catechism? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught and it's true. You're right. So God is hallowed when his word is confirmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here he's going to confirm this word. When this happens, they will know. The nations will know. I think there's plenty of nations that know today. If you quote unquote nations, that is people that know that the word of Jesus is true. And yet... They're tenaciously holding on to lies in hopes that maybe they can still escape the truth that Jesus will done for what they know to be true. Right? Think about this with like the sexuality issues and it's like we're gonna we're going to double down in our mockery of what we know to be good, right, and true, according to nature and according to God's word, and see if God is actually real. That's another kind of sign of wonder, isn't it? Let's 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 bait God and see how he responds. Let's test him and see what he does. And what does he say here, by way of Ezekiel? He will. Or as as one of the children in in chapel now uh, has learned to say, be careful what you wish for (laughs) or what you ask for. Yeah. You want God to destroy your enemies, be careful because you may be one. Right? Yeah. By your unbelief. So, um, the nations will know me when I'm hallowed before you, O God, before their eyes, all, that I, I brought you against my own people, and then I defeat you in that. Uh, you also have here, you have that inversion of what we expect to be glorious is actually, in God's eyes, weakness. Gog and the other nations are these nations with armies, and soul, they have armament, they have horses, they're large, they're numerous. They come against God's people who don't even have walls, don't even have weapons, it seems. They're weak, defenseless. 
And yet God chooses what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chooses what's powerless to shame, or what, what's humble or powerless to shame the, pro- the proud and the, the strong. Right? So that, and that inversion you see in the other prophets, like Isaiah, 100 years before this, and of course in Jesus too. Yeah, yeah. So that they, he, they will know him and he will be hallowed. Uh, and then this is, a, this is also a curious statement. Uh, verse 17, thus says the Lord God, are you of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants? The prophets of Israel prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. And now, now you're scratching your head because you're like, wait a minute, which other prophet talked about Gog and the other nations coming against Israel? Because there isn't. Not, not explicitly. Gog, Magog, these guys, Magog's listed, I showed you in Genesis. First Chronicles kind of mentions him too, or his people, right? But how is it that, what other prophets, when did the prophets mention this battle, this great battle? And again, this is why I think you want to think of it as the last battle, or the final battle, you know, the latter days, this time, where, where the nations are, are actually rising up against us as Christians for believing in Christ. Um, so which prophetic sayings? Um, I gave you some examples. Well, let me just read what I wrote. This is the second full paragraph on page two. Who, who are the former days prophets who made similar prophecies? None mentioned God specifically, yet he and his attacking allies are fulfillments of what er, the earlier prophets had spoken and the imminent destruction at the hand of Yahweh. The great showdown battle is not at all at variance with the promise of the ultimate restoration of Israel. Although... For a time, it might seem otherwise, just as the ongoing persecutions of the church uh, cause her to yearn for the final It's when her warfare shall have ceased. Right? So yes, it doesn't look like Christ has won the, the victory when you look at our church. Or the church, the, just the whole church on earth. Even, not just our congregation. Right? Does it look like he's winning? What would that look like? Okay. In, in worldly terms, it'd be lots of people. Yeah, people living according to faith and but it doesn't look that way. I mean, it does a little bit, but <laughs> not to the degree you would think that would actually be victory, right? Yeah. Like the majority of people in our community don't have faith in Christ. Far and away majority, 70%, maybe 80%. Just look at the obituaries. Do you do this? How many of them have Christian funerals? That's, that's what I love. Very, very few. It'd be like one out of six. Right, one out of five. At best, 20%. Right, that's telling you, tell you what, what you should think here. All right, uh, where was I? There, there is ample evidence that prophetic sayings were recorded and collected during a prophet's lifetime. This is another way you can maybe answer this question. Uh, and so examples are in Jeremiah 36, 45, Isaiah 8 as well, maybe. Moses in Deuteronomy shows an awareness of prophecy. We read this this week, both true and false, right? If the prophet, uh, if what he says does not come true, then you stone him, right? No, you don't listen to him. You could stone him too if you want. Um, <clears throat> and then Second uh, uh, Kings, for example, describes explicitly the fall of the northern kingdom as a fulfillment of prophecy. So what I would suggest, the way to understand is, and former days, you could do former days as like generally all the other prophets that have spoken before, Isaiah, or Jeremiah's contemporaneous, but he's back in the, he's back still in Israel. Well, he was until the collapse of, of Jerusalem, um, which just happened a few chapters ago in Ezekiel. But, um, but you could also say of Ezekiel's former prophecies. Remember, this is over a span of a decade. So he had formerly prophesied, um, and I gave you some examples of that, back in chapter 24, chapter 33, 
right? So it could be that God's saying that I'm going to authenticate what I've been speaking by way of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel couldn't even refer to that. Look, remember, we talked about that when the, when the messenger came back from Jerusalem. It's like, oh, look, all the things I've been saying all this time have come true, right? So maybe that's another way you could understand that. So now, maybe Ezekiel's thinking this is going to happen in his lifetime. Woo. All right, and then uh, we'll just do it from 18 to the end. Yeah. Sorry if it's still moving. Did it stop moving? It stopped moving. Good. And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword because God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, that mm-hmm. they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. So what, what it sounds like God's doing here, yes, he's driven Gog and the other nations out towards his people. He's even set up his people in such a way that they're, they look to be easy prey, right? They don't have their walls and everything. But then when they, when they attack, what? It's a trap. It's a trap, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. It's a meme now. Uh, yes, so yes. It's a trap, you hear that? They, they, they show up to fight the battle, and then the Lord comes out against them. Uh, which is actually should be encouraging to us, I think, because sometimes you have a great time in the bathroom, apparently. <laughs> oh, yes, when you flush that toilet. Oh. It is very exciting, yes, if you're a small child. Never does it, though. Do you think they're okay in there? Somebody has to be responsible for them so I can keep teaching. All right. Um, Notice, though, also, this is really incredible, the kind of judgment that's going to be brought against them, right? Actually, all creation is going to be set against Gog and Magog, right? And you heard this in the sermon today, that all creation is groaning with birth pangs until now. We don't, God, I mean, Jesus does say that that the the star and moons and planets, that the seasons, that that the things of this earth are given to us for signs and seasons, days and years, right? We heard that in the creation story. The problem is, is that we need God's word attached to them. Without God's word attached to them, we have no idea what, what they mean. When it comes to earthquake, there's prophetic fulfillment of earthquake in particular, which happens at the cross of Jesus. You read this, especially in Matthew, where the earthquake happens, then the graves are opened, um, and the tombs of the dead are opened. They come forth from the tomb. The curtain is of the temple is torn in two, with, but it comes with an earthquake. Um, you see earthquakes happen again in, in the book of Acts. Like that's one of the ways that uh, Peter, John, and, or whoever is released from prison, right, with the earthquake. And then the jailer is, is terrified. Um, do we think of earthquakes as, as a sign from God? 
Apparently not people who live in California. <laughs> God's saying, maybe this isn't the best place for you to live. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mother's mad at me again. <laughs> right. Right. But notice it's, it's like all encompassing, all creation. We, I mean, we even have the birds coming against him. We've got the fish revolting against, against this enemy. You've got the beasts, the creeping things, all the men. They're all coming against Gog, Magog and the rest. Really incredible. Really incredible. And not only that, then he does something we've seen before right here. Every man's sword will be against his brother. You've seen that before in Judges chapter 7. There it is. Judges chapter 7. Remember with Gideon and the Midianites? Who ends up killing the Midianites? Around Gideon and his 300 men, they surround the... They just make a bunch of noise and then the people go into a tumult and they kill each other. So you have this, right? This is, I mean, we know this happens with warfare all the time, right? You have an ally, and then once you've defeated the foe, then the ally becomes your foe. Think, uh, I don't know, Joseph Stalin, right? He's our great ally. There were Stalinists in our country. And then, but wait, no, actually, he's our enemy now. Like, wait, how did you flip that on us so quick? I wasn't alive then. I don't know how, how it was done. Probably through TV <laughs> in the newspaper. Like, all of a sudden... The great ally becomes the mortal enemy. Like, what? What? How do we? Well, this is what God says happens, right? Uh, live by the sword, die by the sword, I suppose, right? Um, and so, but notice, the sword against, the, against them is coming against Gog by the Lord. The Lord will call the sword. So this, from start to finish, this is all his doing. And Esther, move, move. And this, this is revealed to us through prophecy so that when these things happen, we will not despair, right? This is what Jesus says. When you, when you see these things, we'll hear it in five weeks or so. When you see these things happening, look up, for your redemption is drawing near. You're like, well, wait a minute. It's wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, plagues, death all around. And we're supposed to look up and rejoice? Like, what? It's like, I'm keeping my word. I told you this would happen. Right? And it, and it must happen. Right? Ultimately, that's the full judgment of sin is when the world is destroyed. Right? And our flesh too. And then resurrected. Alright? Um, and then, yeah, not only do we have the beasts and the birds and the fish against Gog and the sword, but also pestilence, bloodshed, uh, hail and rain and flooding rain. And then, of course, our favorite, fire and brimstone. Right? Which reminds us, of course, God has done that before. Fire and brimstone, sulfur, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So, so you hear that. Uh, and then, of course, this, uh, this is used in the New Testament. Fire and brimstone, those are the... Do you have stinky, really stinky fire? That, yeah, exactly. That's hell. It smells, and you're being burnt up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you got to engage the senses. All this is the Lord's doing against God. But notice it's God's people who are going to have to suffer as a result of him bringing judgment upon the unbelieving nations of the north. Right? But I will magnify myself. You won't think less of me now. You'll think more of me. 
I am God, I am no, and I will sanctify myself, that is, set myself apart from the rest of all other gods, all the nations, etc. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. We've talked about how that's not always the most pleasant experience. <laughs> um, but maybe, I mean, maybe that, to connect it to the sermon a little bit, I mean, maybe that's part of our lament and not having signs and wonders is that we, like I said, I said it in the sermon, right? That we want God to be known to us. And he does, but only by way of where his word sends us or points us. He says, look at the font. He says, oh, look at the altar. This is bread and wine. It's a meal. Look, look at the, I brought you a guy to talk to you and tell me, tell you his word, my word, and to forgive you your sins. You're like, yeah, it's, this is Pastor Gillespie. He's kind of an idiot, you know? <laughs> He did get a haircut finally, but you know, whatever. And, and he says, no, but that's what you're supposed to look at. That, this is what the Augsburg Confession says, is that you don't look at any of the other stuff, the way they dress, you know, the character of the building, the kind of liturgy that they're using, what scripture readings they choose to do, whether they celebrate a Reformation Day or not. You don't look at any of that. The question is, what's, what does God want us to look at? Where the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the people of God lead holy lives according to it, to quote the small catechism. Or the Augsburg Confession. I said I was going to quote the Augsburg Confession. We'll do that. Um, where, um, see, I can't do truth and purity. How's it go? Where the gospel is preached and the sacraments administered according to Christ's command. That's how they say it. That's, that's the only thing you need to look for, is the gospel preached. My sins forgiven. The sacraments given the way that Christ gave them to be given. Right? And you don't need anything else. Like what? But that's not, that's not impressive. It's like, oh, don't worry. You will know that I am the Lord. If, if, if he chooses to come while you're still alive, you will get the sign fulfilled. But he wants you to just trust him that this is what's going to happen. This is his word. But you're not necessarily going to give you to see it. It may be your children, your children's children, or a millennia from now or something, right? Uh, we actually pray that this would happen. That's the also uncomfortable part of this. We pray that God would bring our enemies against us so that he could defeat them once and for all. <laughs> Wait, what? No, that would be uncomfortable. Don't do that. Right? But that's what we say when we say, come Lord Jesus. We're saying, come to defeat the enemies that stand at our gates on the last day. We're praying for the last day. Also for him to come to, to dinner with us, but... <laughs> what? You keep saying, yes. You've moved on from answering every question Jesus now. Now every question is Holy Spirit. Okay. All right, so then, um, by the way, new schedule next week, right? 9.30, 8.30, pre-daylight savings, 9.30, post-daylight savings time. Maybe that's the way to say it. I don't know. And then uh, Bible class will be moving to before church. So you're going to have to set your alarms. I know, this is early. But we're not having Bible study in the next two weeks. So, so first you can adjust to the new Sunday, the new service schedule. You get a little bit of a break. And then come, come November 19th, I'm a, I'd like you to be here at 8.15. Right? I know. With two weeks off? Yeah. So, so next, next, next week is Good Shepherd Institute. It's, uh, it's for pastors and musicians at, at Fort Wayne Seminary. It's, it's a really, always a really great conference. Um, and I like being around 
people other than pastors sometimes. Sorry, you don't understand. It's like, it's like if you're a mechanic and all you do is, is hang out with other mechanics. You get a little kind of boring, right? You don't want to have a drink with the people you work with. Like, you'd rather go home to your wife, one thing, but... No, maybe I have friends that are interested. <laughs> um, sorry. So yeah, around music. And the music's great, and I love music, so that, that's a beautiful thing too. So that's next weekend. I can't really, because I, I, uh, I barter my attendance so that they pay my travel and my lodging and my attendance. I do the recording for it. Um, but that also means I need to get there a little earlier on Sunday. Conference, uh, when the events start for Five hour, almost five hour drive. There's an hour time change. And that day's daylight savings, so there's probably a lot of reasons to say, okay, we'll get a sub. So you have a sub next week. You get the hour back when you come back. Um, by the way, Good Shepherd Institute, I've uh, been working to produce a CD of all those recordings that I've been doing since 2008, I think, seven. I, as well, I was a student, I started recording. I missed one year, but. Um, yeah, so we, there's going to be a CD of hymns that I've recorded over the years. Um, a multi-disc set? No, it's just going to be, it's probably going to be 13. You've heard some of them if you listen to the daily prayer. Yeah. I've been playing them in the morning, the ones I've been working on. And then, um, and then we go to Florida, actually, on uh, Thursday of that week. So then we'll be in Florida for a week. Um, but we will have Wednesday service those two weeks. I just won't be here for Sunday. So, What? I don't know what we're doing. Not too worried about it. Yeah, that'd be really funny. No, I will be. Uh, I'll be pre-recording them. They'll be pre-recorded. I'm thinking about. We'll see how my week goes. I've got some visits to make, so uh, they may. The daily prayer might be abbreviated. Just. A little bit so that I can record a whole bunch of them <laughs> without getting really tired of singing the same hymn seven times in one day or something. But, but I know that's not the same for you, but um, it's okay. And then when you come back on the 19th, we'll go, we'll get God's defeat and God's triumph. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.